And I'm believing that. Amen. God bless you. Brother Seven, love you. Appreciate you coming all this way. Just give him a good hand here this morning. God bless him. Let's give the Lord that praise this morning. He's worthy. Oh, why don't you just take a moment and clap your hands and lift your voice. If you're glad to be in this house. Come on, if you're thankful to be in his presence this morning. Aren't you thankful that you serve a living God? You know, the only time in your Bible that the I am was referred to as the I was is in Revelation when the Bible says, I am he that liveth and was dead. But behold, I am alive forevermore. The tomb of Jesus is the only place where tourists line up to see nothing at all. Because he's alive forevermore. Aren't you thankful you serve a God who's alive? He did die, but he conquered death and hell, and he's alive forevermore. And I'm thankful that I serve that kind of God this morning. And if he's alive, that means he's active, he's moving. And I feel him in this room today. And I'm thankful that he's here. It doesn't matter about the evangelist. The only thing that matters is if God is here. And I know he's here because I can feel him in this house. And uh, it's an honor to be with you this morning and give honor to your pastor and his wife and family, brother and sister Moore. I give them honor today, love and appreciate them. And all the ministry that is represented here uh, saints, visitors, uh, thank you for being in church on a Sunday morning. Amen. And I've come to have church today. Right. Amen. Amen. We live in a very busy world. Things are going 100 miles an hour, it seems. And uh, I know what it's like to live a busy life. Uh, we are full-time evangelists in the midst of building a house. And uh, if you want to stay prayed up, just build a house. Or if you want to see how carnal you can get, just build you a house. Uh, but we live in a world, I mean, things are just moving so fast. And, and, and I know that you're busy with work and school and just life. Life is just busy. But I'm thankful that we have days like this set aside. That we can just do our best to shut all that off for a few hours and just come together and have uh, a meeting with him. And I'm thankful that he's here today. Isaiah chapter 43 if you have your Bible, Isaiah 43, and I will, I'll just go ahead and get this out of the way and tell you that um, it may not be very evangelistic this morning. Um, now, don't check out and say, well, I'll check back in tonight, um, but I'm just going to talk to you about something that the Lord is, has uh, dealt with me about the last few days leading up to this service, and I know where I am. I know this is a one God church. I know this is a Jesus' name church. I know your pastor preaches it. You've got other ministers, that, Brother Troy ministers here that preach it. But I'm just going to echo that for a few minutes today if that's all right. And I promise you when we get done, not because I'm here, but I promise you when we get done, God can meet every need in this house this morning. Isaiah chapter number 43 and verse number 10 Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. Now, anytime you see the word Lord capitalized in the King James Version of your Bible, 
It's the Old Testament covenant name of God. It's where we get Jehovah. So anytime you see Lord capitalized, just know it's, it's Jehovah talking. So Jehovah says, ye are my witnesses. So we could almost call ourselves a Jehovah's Witness. Got your attention now. But watch this. Jehovah says, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I want to talk to you for a few moments today about the oneness of God. The oneness of God. You know, Brother Moore, there's a saying before we pray, but there's a saying that, that tells us what you don't know can't hurt you. And when you begin to look at it from a spiritual aspect, I agree. What you don't know can hurt you. What you don't know can destroy you. Because didn't Hosea say, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge? You know, the only thing in your Bible that can destroy you, as far as I'm concerned, and I may be wrong, but the only thing, Brother Troy, that I can find in that Bible that will destroy us is not the devil, and it's not hell. The only thing that will destroy us is a lack of knowledge. And so I want to do my best to, just to talk to you for a few moments today about the oneness of God. So why don't we lift our hands one more time before we're seated. And as your hands are lifted, why don't you just ask the Lord to speak to every heart in this house. Lord, we thank you for this chance, this opportunity to be in your room today. God, we thank you, Lord, that we're in your presence. God, I pray that you'd touch every individual in this house today. God, I pray that revelation would flow in this room this morning. Let your word go forth. Let it be a sharp sword, Lord. In Jesus' name, God, we feel your presence in this house. And let your perfect will be accomplished in this room today. In Jesus' name. And why don't you give the Lord one more great hand clap of praise. Come on, why don't you just continue that for just a moment? Come on, by our praise, why don't we just let him know that he's welcome here today? He's already here, but we want him to stay here. In Jesus' name. Amen, and if you promise not to get too bored, you may be seated. Thank you for standing. Since the birth of Jesus Christ there has been a wide range of views concerning who Christ is. From the time that he was born until his death, burial, and ascension, there were people who praised him, and then there were people who opposed him. Jesus was a, and still is, a, pers a polarizing personality in the world. The fact is, there will never be a unanimous consensus concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. There have been many views set forward concerning the nature of Christ. This is an important question, and it is an important issue. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 42 says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? 
This is an important question. It is the ultimate question. It is something that must be settled in the life of an individual. And that is, what think ye of Christ? Whether you want to admit it or not, everybody is going to form an opinion concerning this man, Jesus Christ. It is inescapable that you must draw a conclusion of this man. You cannot go through your life and remain neutral concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Every one of us in this room, we all are going to have to make a decision. Matthew chapter 16, 13 through 17 says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Brother Troy, isn't it amazing that Jesus continually comes back to this question throughout his earthly ministry? He wants to make sure that his disciples have a revelation of who he is. And the Bible says, They say that some say thou art John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But notice how Jesus then pivots the conversation. Because first he says, whom do they say that I am? But then Jesus makes it personal. And he says, but whom say ye that I am? Jesus wants to know what his early church has to say about him. And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And when we read these verses, there are two revelations that we need to take notice of. The first revelation is Peter only knew Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, because it came from the Father. Jesus said, Flesh and blood cannot reveal this unto you. And so the first thing we got to understand is if I'm going to have a revelation of who Jesus is. Flesh and blood cannot give it to me. But the only way I can get a revelation of who Jesus is, it must come from the Father. But then Jesus then looks at Peter and said, here's the second revelation. He said, I'm going to build my church. The foundation of my New Testament church is going to be built on the revelation of who I am. The church, ladies and gentlemen, wasn't built on Peter like some believe but the church was built on Peter's revelation of who Jesus was that's why when Jesus calls him Peter he uses the Greek word Petros which means a small pebble but when Jesus speaks of the rock the church is going to sit on he uses a different word he uses the word Petra which means a large boulder and so Jesus looks at Peter and Jesus looks at his disciples and he says my church isn't going to sit on you Peter my church is going to sit on the foundation that you have a revelation of who I am. And can I tell this congregation this morning, that's why the church, the apostolic church, has the authority that it does. It's not that we're any better than anybody else, but we said it a long time ago. I know who Jesus is. And that's why we've got the authority and the anointing and the dominion that we have. We know who he is. And what's even more amazing is Jesus says that the gates of hell 
will not prevail against the church. You know what Jesus was telling his disciples? And it's something that we need to be reminded of as the church as a whole. And that is the only church the gates of hell cannot prevail against is the church who knows who Jesus is. That's why the apostolic church cannot be defeated. That's why the apostolic church cannot be shut down. That's why hell has no power and authority over the apostolic church. It's because we know who he is. Jesus said the only church that will not be overcome by hell is the church who sits on the foundation of who I am. And so understanding that, I think it's imperative to say uh, it is important that we all have an understanding uh, of who this man Jesus is. Uh, and how many in this house are glad to know uh, that you have a divine revelation of who Jesus is? Uh, a revelation that can only come from God. It is an important question. Uh, Jesus asked it more than once in his ministry. Uh, in fact, it was a topic of concern in the prayers of Christ. Uh, John 7 17 and 3 says and this is life eternal what is life eternal Jesus he said that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent so that verse tells me that a revelation of God and Christ are essential to eternal life John 8 and 24, the Bible says, I said therefore unto you uh, that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sin. Can I remind you that it is not optional, uh, this revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, but it is absolutely fundamental uh, and essential to your walk with God uh, to have a revelation of who Jesus is. Uh, that's the reason why Jesus said uh, the first of the commandments is here, uh, Oh Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now it's not chronologically the first commandment because there were commandments that preceded this commandment. But Jesus was really saying that this is the greatest of all commandments. It's not the first in chronological order, but it is the first in order of importance. Can I tell you that there is no greater revelation that you will ever have in your life than a revelation of who you worship? In fact, can I tell you a revelation of God is intrinsically connected with your worship. That's the reason why Jesus said in John 4, you worship, you know not what, but we know who we worship, for worship is of the Jews. Can I tell you, you've got to have a revelation of who God is in order to truly give Him worship. Understand, anybody can praise Anybody can praise God. In fact, Psalms tells us the fire and the deep, the things that fly, the things that creep on the ground. Everything's going to praise you. But can I tell you why anybody can praise Him? Not everybody can worship Him. Because in order to graduate from praise to worship, you've got to have a revelation of who He is that you're worshiping. It's important to know who God is. That's why the text tells us that ye are my witnesses, uh, that ye may know, uh, and that ye may believe, uh, and that ye may understand that I am He. Uh, look at the gradual process that the Bible shows us. Uh, he says, I want you to know, uh, and then I want you to believe, uh, but ultimately I want you to understand. Uh, can I tell you that God wants us to do more uh, than just know it, uh, and God wants us to do more than just believe it, uh, but God wants us to 
understand it. Somewhere along the line, ladies and gentlemen, we've got to get more than just a knowledge of the oneness of God. Somewhere along the line, we've got to do more than just believe the oneness of God. But we've got to mix our faith with it and say it's more than something I've heard. It's more than something I believe. But I've got to get this in my understanding. Because if I don't understand it, there is a chance that I may lose it. The ultimate question is not do you believe it? The ultimate question is not even do you believe it? The ultimate question is not do you know it or believe it? But the ultimate question is do you understand it? That's why Matthew 13 and 19 says these words, When any man heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown, not just in his mind, but in his heart. This is he which receiveth the seed by the wayside. Look at what the Bible says. They heard the word of the kingdom. They had knowledge of it. It was sown in their heart. They believed it. But because they did not understand it, the wicked one was able to steal it from their heart. Please don't be satisfied ladies and gentlemen to sit on an apostolic pew and just know truth. Please don't be satisfied just to believe truth but at some point you've got to take what you know and what you believe and you've got to take it to an altar and say God get this in my understanding because the only protection truth has in your heart is truth you understand. Not truth that you know. Not truth that you believe. But the only protection truth has in your heart is truth that you can understand. That's why Matthew 13, 23 goes on and tells us, but either receiveth seed unto good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also bears fruit. And he brings forth a hundredfold, sixty and thirtyfold. But you've got to have an understanding of truth for it to bring forth fruit in your life. Because if you get a real understanding of truth, the devil cannot steal it out of your heart and the devil cannot take it away from you. The only people who walk away from God are people who are satisfied to know it and believe it. But can I tell you if you get an understanding of truth the devil cannot destroy you and the devil cannot take it from you the only possibility of deception after you receive a love and an understanding of the truth is if you receive not a love of the truth the Bible says if you understand it but don't love it he'll send you strong delusion let you believe a lie and be damned now, we always think of God as the source of revelation. But can I tell you that there are two deceivers you need to worry about? The devil taking it from you because you only believe it. But God also taking it from you if you understand it but don't love it. I believe God is so concerned with His truth, Brother Moore that He will not let us understand truth and not love it and let us hang on to it forever. But somewhere along the line, I've got to say, I know this, I believe this, I understand this, and then I've got to fall in love with it. Because if you understand it, the devil cannot take it. And if you love it, God will not take it. If you understand it, the devil can't. If you love it, God won't. If you want to make it, fall in love with truth. 
Get an understanding of truth. And it doesn't matter what wind of false doctrine blows in your direction. The understanding and the love of truth that you've received will be the very thing that keeps you grounded. So now the question is, how many is God? Malachi 2 and 10 says, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us all? Mark chapter 12 and verse 32, The scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said a truth, for there is one God. Romans 3 and 30 says, Seeing that it is one God, who shall justify through the circumcision by faith, and uncircumcision through faith. 1 Corinthians 8 and 6 says, But unto us there is but one God the Father. 1 Timothy 2 and 5 says, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. James 2 and 19 says, Thou believest that there was one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe. And they tremble. What makes the devils tremble about the knowledge of God? You remember the story of the man Legion in Gadara? I am Legion, we are many. 2,000 to 16,000 devils. I don't know how many devils he had. He had a lot. But this is why I believe the devils tremble when they have an understanding of one God. It's because there were two to 16,000 devils and one Jesus. And the devils have a revelation that it only takes one God to defeat everything that we have. The devils also believe and they tremble. In fact, it only took one God to cast Lucifer out and a third of the angels. The devils believe and they tremble. Here's a side note. I've always found it interesting that when people begin to talk about the devil or Satan, Lucifer, they always say he's one, correct? I've never met anybody that said there's three, three Satans or three Lucifers. Now I say that because it's interesting. That one Satan in your Bible is called the father of all lies. That one Satan in your Bible is called the son of perdition. That one Satan in your Bible is called an angel of light looking to deceive a spirit. So why do we know all of that? He's father, son, and spirit. But we still think there's one God. But we struggle believing that God is one. Can I tell you that God will always tell us the truth about the devil, but the devil will always try to tell us a lie about who God is. And if you can understand that the devil is the father of all lies, if you can understand that he's the son of perdition, if you can understand that he is a spirit as an angel of light, then you can get the understanding that Jesus is the father. And by God, I feel my Holy Ghost right now. You can get the understanding that Jesus is the father, he is the son, and he is the Holy Ghost. There is... One God. Nothing can be plainer in Scripture. If all we had were those list of verses I just read to you, and there's a lot more, but if all we had were those list of verses I just gave you, uh, it would be more than enough to believe what we believe. Uh, but aren't you thankful that's not all God gave us? Uh, because not only is there one God, uh, but Deuteronomy 32 and 39 says, See now that I, even I, am He, uh, and there is no God with me. Second uh, Chronicles 2 and 5, uh, the Bible says, For our God is great uh, above all gods. Uh, Isaiah 43 and 10 says, Before me uh, there was no God formed, uh, neither shall there be 
be any after me. Isaiah 44, 24 says, I am alone. I stretch the earth by myself. Isaiah 45 and 6 says, there is none beside me and there is none else. Isaiah 46 and 9 says, there is none else and there is none like me. So ladies and gentlemen, not only is there one God, but that one God says, there's none with me. There's none above me. There's none before me. There's none after me. I'm alone. I'm by myself. There's none beside me. There's none else. And there is none like. If God was to try to convey his oneness to us, how could God be any more clearer than telling us I'm one God? I'm alone. I'm by myself. There's none beside me. There's none like me. And there is no one else. Could not be any clearer. In fact, when God got, I'm trying to stick to my notes, but I feel so much Holy Ghost up here right now. Isn't it amazing that when God got ready to swear his promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son that you talked about. You know what the Bible says? He caused a deep sleep to fall on Abraham. And the Bible said, here comes God walking through those pieces as a flaming torch. And your Bible says, God said, I looked around. And because I found nobody greater than myself, I swore by myself. You know what God was saying? There's no nobody else. There's none beside me. There was nobody before me and there's nobody coming after me. I'll put my reputation on the line. Your Bible could not be any clearer that there is one God. But not only is there one God who is alone by himself, etc., Deuteronomy 6 and 4 says, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So not only is there one God, but that one God is one. You can be seated just for a moment. That's why Mark 12 and 29, Brother Troy says, And Jesus answered him. He said, The first of all commandments is, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Galatians 3 and 20 says, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one. But God is one. So not only is there one God, but that one God is one. Now you got to get this. Saying that there's one God tells you how many gods there are. But saying God is one tells you how many God is. Saying that there's one God tells you how many gods there are. But saying God is one tells you how many God is. And the difference between us and different religious persuasions is not a surface claim that there's one God. Because there's many that say there's one God. But the difference is some say that there's one God in three distinct beings. So you have one God who is three. But we don't say that, and we don't believe that, and that's not what the Bible teaches. We not only say that there's one God, but we say that one God is one. That's why Galatians 3 and 20 says, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. A mediator cannot mediate with just one person. That's what Paul's telling us. A mediator is not a mediator of one. But what the mediator is not, God is. <laughs> See, Brother Troy, I can't mediate with just you because you've got to have somebody else for me to step between y'all and mediate. 
So let's say Brother Troy and Brother Moore have a disagreement. I know they won't, but let, hypothetically. Because y'all are opposed to each other, and there's more than one, I now can become a mediator. Because a mediator is not a mediator of one. But what the mediator is not a mediator of, God is. In fact, that is the literal translation of James 2.19. When the Bible says the devils believe that there's one God and they tremble, it literally means thou believest God is one. So there is only one God, and that one God is one. So who is God? Only the Father can be God. Malachi 2 and 10 says, Have we not all one Father? So the one God is the Father. John 8 and 41 says, You do the deeds of your Father. Then said they to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. 1 Corinthians 8 and 6 says, But unto us there is one God, the Father. Ephesians 4 and 6 says that there is one God and Father of all. Above all, through all, and in you all. John 17 and 3 says, This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So only the Father is God. Now you got to get this. There's only one God. And that one God is one. And the one God who is one is the Father. Because only the Father can be God. Now the question is, is Jesus God? Because if Jesus is God, He's got to be the Father. Because only the Father is God. I can say Jesus is the Father. I can say Jesus is God because in that Old Testament there are prophecy after prophecy after prophecy and then in the New Testament there's fulfillment of that prophecy. Jeremiah 17 and 9 through 10 says, watch this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The prophet is asking, he's telling us that no man can know your heart. No man knows the thoughts. But then verse 10 says, I the Lord search the heart. This is God's answer to the prophet. No man can know your heart, but God turns around and says, I know your heart. I try the reins. I give unto every man according to their ways. So the Jehovah God, the Father in the Old Testament, says, I am the only one who can know your heart. No man knows your heart or your thoughts, but God says, I know your heart and I try the reins. Now that's interesting because jump to Revelation 2 and 18 and then verse 23 and the Bible says unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things, saith the Son of God. This is Jesus talking to the church. The Bible tells us in verse 23, and all the churches shall know that I am He which searcheth the reins and the hearts, and I will give every one of you according to your works. So here Jesus tells us that I am the Jehovah God of the Old Testament who searches the hearts and tries the reins. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. The prophecy comes forth and says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Uh, watch this. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now this is Old Testament. 
But the Jehovah God is saying, you're going to look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one who mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So again, the God of the Old Testament, the Jehovah, the Father, is saying that they're going to look upon me whom they have pierced. And when they look upon me whom they have pierced, they are going to mourn for him. And of course, this was fulfilled by Christ, because in John 19, it says that one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forth came out blood and water. Look at what's happening, ladies and gentlemen. The Jehovah God of the Old Testament says they're going to look upon me whom they have pierced. And when they look upon me whom they have pierced, he looks through the tunnels of time and sees the crucifixion of Christ and said they're going to mourn for them. What are you trying to say, God? I'm trying to tell you that the him is me and the me is him because when they pierce me, they're going to mourn for him. And when they mourn for him, it's when they're going to pierce me. Jesus who died on the cross was not just a mere man. He was that Jehovah God of the Old Testament. Fulfilling prophecy. More proof, not that you need it, but the Bible's on our side. Aren't you glad the Bible's on our side? There's more proof. We know the prophecy of Joel. In the last days I'll part my spirit, saith the Lord. Your sons and daughters are going to prophesy old men dream dreams, young men see visions. We know. That is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. We know that. Holy Ghost is poured out. The Bible says they pour out in the streets speaking in that heavenly language and people begin to wonder what's going on. They're either drunk or they're crazy. <laughs> That's usually how people still define Pentecost today. They either got in communion jugs or they're just loony. And they ask the question, what meaneth this? What meaneth what? What meaneth tongues? So Peter, the Bible says in Acts 2 around verses 11 through 14 or 14 through 18, the Bible says Peter stands up with the eleven and he preaches them what Joel had prophesied 700 years earlier. But we always focus on Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. Let me read it to you. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. Because I want you to hear this. This is what we always focus on. And it shall come to pass afterward. Correct? I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Your young men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions. That's what we always look at. But verse 28 starts out by saying, And it shall come to pass afterward. After what? you got to back up to verse 27. Because the God of the Old Testament is speaking through the prophet Joel. And in verse 27 he says, And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord Jehovah your God Elohim, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. So the prophet tells us before the Holy Ghost is poured out, God Jehovah the Father Elohim is going to walk among us. And what do you think Jesus was doing those three and a half years before the Holy Ghost was poured out? That's why the Bible says when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart because they realized we killed our Messiah. The man that we've been waiting on, we killed him on a cross because the prophet told us he's going to be in the midst of his people. And that's why conviction set in and they realized we killed the wrong guy. Actually, they killed the right guy, but it was the wrong guy in their opinion. But Paul Peter then says, no for a surety. That God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
It was prophesied before the Holy Ghost is poured out, He's going to walk among you. And He did. But there's more proof. Because Exodus chapter 15, verse number 2, just to kind of give you a summary of what's going on, we know that Israel's been brought through Egypt, out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's been drowning in the waters. And the Bible says when all this happens, Moses begins to sing a song of deliverance. And when Moses is singing, Miriam the prophetess takes a tambourine in her hand and they begin to sing with timbrels and dances. And the Bible says they begin to sing a song unto the Lord. In Exodus 15 and 2, I want you to hear this. The Bible says uh, in Exodus 15 and 1, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. Uh, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. Uh, the horse and his rider have he thrown into the sea. This is what I want you to get. Uh, the Lord is my strength and song. And he, speaking of the Lord, he, Jehovah, Jehovah has become my salvation. But Moses wasn't the only guy to sing that song. Because you go to Psalm chapter 118 and the Bible shows us David singing that same song because Psalm 118 and 14 and then Psalm 118 21 David says the Lord is my strength and song and he the Lord Jehovah has become my salvation verse 21 says I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and thou art become my salvation he's talking about the Lord Jehovah so not only did Moses say Jehovah has become my salvation but David also said the Lord has become my salvation but then Isaiah picks up on it, ladies and gentlemen. And Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 12 and 2, the same words. I will trust thee and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Moses, David, and Isaiah all said, the Lord Jehovah has become my salvation. Why does that matter to us? It's because when you look at that word salvation in the Hebrew, it is the same word for Yeshua in the English language. And Yeshua is the Hebrew word for Jesus. And so when you substitute Jesus for salvation, you know what they were really saying? They were saying, Jehovah is my song. Jehovah has become my Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, all the way back in the Old Testament, it was prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Moses saw it. David saw it. And Isaiah saw it. They said, the Jehovah God that we're worshiping there's going to come a day when Jehovah is going to become my Jesus oh by the way do you know what Jesus name means Jehovah has become our salvation that's why I can say Jesus is God that's why I can say Jesus is the father because there's prophecy and there is fulfillment Jesus was and is almighty God I can say that He's God by plain statement. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. You mean the Son's going to be called the Everlasting Father? That's why I can call Him the Father. Plain statement. Thomas, the doubter, says, I won't believe unless I can see or touch Him. The Bible says Jesus walks through the walls. It says, Thomas, touch my hands, touch my side. The Bible says when Thomas touched his hands and his side, Thomas utters one of the most prophetic verses in your Bible when he looks at Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. 
My Lord literally means a title of respect. It's the word kurios, which means sir or master. You're my Lord. You're my teacher. You're my rabbi. But Thomas doesn't stop there. Because he says, you're not only my Lord, but you're my God. That word God is the absolute title of deity. It's the word theos. And it means supreme divinity. And when Thomas looks at Jesus, he's saying the only reason you're able to stand here alive is not because you're just a Lord. But I've got the revelation now that you are my God. You are Lord and God. But not only is that the reason why he can say it, but there are men all throughout the New Testament who speak to the deity of Jesus. Paul spoke covered in Romans 9 and 5 when he said to them belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God he also tells us in Colossians 2 and 9 for in him who is him in him Christ Jesus dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily but not only did Paul speak of it but James spoke of it James 2 and 1 says my brethren hath not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory with respect of persons but not only did Paul say it not only did James say it Peter tells us in 1 Peter 10 through 11 of which salvation the prophets Old Testament have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it was testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ. But then Peter turns back around in 2 Peter 1 and 21 and says, For the prophecy came not in old by the will of man, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Do you catch what Peter's saying? In 1 Peter, he said it was the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament. In 2 Peter, he said it was the Holy Ghost. You know what Peter is telling us? The Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Christ. You cannot separate Christ's Spirit from Him and make somebody different more than you can take your Spirit from you and make somebody else. Peter is saying that Jesus is the Holy Ghost who spoke to those prophets in the Old Testament. Jude 1 and 25 says, To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, power, dominion, both now and forever. John 1 and 8 says, I am Alpha and Omega. This is Jesus. I am the beginning and the end, which is, which was, which was to come, the Almighty. But can I also tell you, Jesus is God because He was worshipped. Matthew 4, 9 through 10, And He saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if that will fall down and worship me. We understand the devil's telling Jesus, Give me your worship, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. So Jesus tells the devil that only God, only the Father can be worshipped. That's why John 4 says, The Father seeketh such to worship Him. For the true worshipers are going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So if Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, receives worship, He's got to be the Father. His reception of worship is the ultimate proof, brother Moore, that He is deity in the flesh. When people tried to worship angels in your Bible, the angels rejected worship. They said, do not worship us. When men were worshipped, true men in Acts, they said, don't worship us. We're men like you are. Get up on your feet. Can I tell you when angels were worshipped, they gave the angelic response, do not worship me. When men were worshipped, they gave a man's response, do not worship me. But in Matthew 2.11, why 
wise men worship Jesus. In Matthew 8 and 2, lepers worship Jesus. In Matthew 9, 18, a ruler worship Jesus. In Matthew 14, 33, disciples worship Jesus. In Matthew 15, 25, a woman of Canaan worshiped him. In Matthew 18, a servant worshiped him. In Matthew 20, a mother and her sons worshiped him. In Mark chapter 5, legion worshiped. And in John chapter 9, a blind man worshiped. When angels were worshipped, they gave an angelic response. When men were worshipped, they gave a man's response. But when Jesus was worshipped, he gave a God response. Because when the lepers worshipped him, he cleansed them. When legion worshipped him, he delivered him. When the blind man worshipped, he healed him. And the only way that is possible is Jesus has got to be God. And if Jesus is God, he's got to be the Father. But if that's not enough, ladies and gentlemen, John 17 and 6 tells us Jesus has God's name. Philippians 2 and 6, the Bible says he has God's nature. In Acts 20 and 28, he has God's blood. In John 4 and 24, he has God's spirit. In Hebrews 1 and 3, he has God's image. In Matthew 28, 18, he has God's power. In Luke 11, he has God's finger. In Acts 20, 28, he has God's church. In John 14 and 10, he has God's work. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what that tells you, but anybody with God's name, God's nature, God's blood, God's spirit, God's image, God's glory, God's power, God's finger, and God's church, has got to be God and if Jesus isn't God he ought to be arrested it's the greatest case of identity theft but aren't you thankful you've got the revelation that Jesus is the father Jesus is Jehovah see it's one thing to steal somebody's name identity but he doesn't just have God's name he's got God's image He's got God's nature. He's got God's blood. And He has God's glory and God's power and God's church. I don't know about you today, but I'm thankful that I know that Jesus is God. C.S. Lewis postulated a... C.S. Lewis tri, postulated a trilemma concerning the nature of Christ. And I'm keeping up with my time. I'm 38 minutes in. Just hang on to me. C.S. Lewis said, and he wrote this, because there was a concept or an idea floating around at that time, and it still floats around today, that there were people who wanted to accept the personality of Christ, but not the deity of Christ. They just wanted to say Jesus is a good man, a good teacher. But they totally rejected that He was God in the flesh. And so C.S. Lewis said, when you look at Jesus, He's one of three things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He said if he's a liar, that means he said he was Lord, knew he wasn't Lord, therefore making him a liar. He said, or he's a lunatic, said he was Lord, thought he was Lord, but was not Lord, therefore making him crazy. Then he said he's either liar, lunatic, or he's Lord. Meaning he said he was Lord, knew he was Lord, really was the Lord, therefore making him Lord. 
And ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you the same question that Jesus asked those men all the way back in Matthew? What think ye of Christ? Is the same question that we all have to answer at one point in our life. And there may be some that call Him a liar. And there may be some that call Him a lunatic. But I don't know about them, but I'm glad I've got the revelation that He is the Lord God Jehovah. He is the Lord of glory. But there comes... Some trouble in the Bible, I guess you could say. Because there are verses that if you read them, it almost seems like they're separate. Anybody ever read a verse in the Bible and you read it, it kind of made you think, are we really right saying we're oneness? I'll be the only one to admit it. There's been times in my life that I read I'm like, that's a pretty good argument. Such is the case in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. Watch this. Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And there are religious persuasions, and I've had conversations with them that point to this and say, In order to say that the Son and the Father are equal in nature or deity, but they're also distinct persons. They say that Jesus is in the form of God, but He's equal with God, and they say you cannot have equality without comparison. You with me? They say the only way Jesus can be equal with God is He's got to have some of the same qualities, but yet He's still a different person. And when you read it, it almost seems like Jesus is equal with God on the same playing field. But you got to understand, me and your pastor, we are distinct persons, but we are both equally human. We share the same human nature, therefore making us equal. And there's people who look at this and say, well, there it is. Jesus is equal with God. They're on the same playing field, but they're separate. So father and son must mean that they share the same nature, but they're different people, therefore giving them equality. So if we are really going to read the Bible without a bias, we've got to ask the question, does that phrase, equal with God, necessitate comparison of two persons in order to have equality? Not if you understand equality with God the way Paul understands equality with God within the context of the Old Testament. This is why I get nervous when I hear people say the Old Testament is out of date and irrelevant. Because you will form ideas like that without the foundation of the Old Testament. You can read that verse made equal with God and you'll come to the conclusion. There it is. Uh, Jesus is on the same playing field with God, but they're different. Uh, But this is why you've got to have the context or the foundation of the Old Testament. Uh, So who is God's equal? Uh, I'm glad Isaiah sums that up for us. uh, Because Isaiah 40 and 20 says, To whom then will you liken me or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Uh, Isaiah 46 and 5 says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Uh, Isaiah 46 and 9 says remember the former things of old for I am God and there is none else I am God and there is nobody like me God says I'm the only God there's nobody like me there's nobody equal to me so God says if you find somebody who's my equal you haven't found somebody else you found me you've got to have the foundation of the Old Testament 
And it's with that concept in mind. Paul, who was brilliant in Old Testament doctrine, brilliant in Old Testament Scripture, Paul knows that God says there's nobody equal to me. Who are you going to compare me to? Paul knows that and still has the audacity to stand up and say, Jesus is equal with God. The only way Jesus can be equal with God is He's got to be God. I'm going to prove it because watch this. The Greek word equal in Philippians is the Greek word isos or esos. You find that same form of that word in Acts eleven seventeen. Acts chapter 11 verse 17, they are reflecting on the Holy Ghost that fell upon the house of Cornelius in Acts 10. Right? The Holy Ghost has come to the Gentiles. And so in Acts eleven seventeen, they are reflecting on the Holy Ghost coming to the Gentiles. And Peter says, For as much then as God gave them the like gift, that word like is esos or esos, it can literally mean equal. So Paul Peter is saying that God has gave them the like or the equal gift He gave us in the beginning. Who was I, could, who was I to withstand God? So understand what Peter is saying. Peter is not saying that the Holy Ghost that fell in Acts chapter 10 is like but different from the Holy Ghost that fell in Acts 2. He's saying that when God gave them the equal gift in Acts 10, it is the same gift He gave us in Acts 2 in the beginning. And His defense was the Gentile are not accepted into the church because they got the same or the equal gift that the Jews got in Acts chapter 2. He's not saying there's a different Holy Ghost for Jew and Gentile. He's saying it's the equal gift. It is the like gift. And if you can understand how Esau's identifies the Holy Ghost of Acts 10 as the same gift of Acts 2, you ought to be able to understand how the equal of God identified the Jesus of Philippians as the Jehovah God of Isaiah. If you can understand that the Holy Ghost the Gentiles got is the same Holy Ghost the Jews got, then you can understand that the God of the Old Testament is the same Jesus of the New Testament. He has made him to be equal, the same. Jesus, and I've got to hurry, I'm skipping a lot of this. Jesus is God. You know, there, there is a difference between being good at something being bad at something. Now when I say being bad at something, I'm not meaning terrible. Because I've come to learn that there's good and there's bad, meaning that you're really good. We were driving down a, a street a few weeks ago and my son, Klein, he's obsessed with Lamborghinis right now. I don't know why. But <laughs> we passed by a car on the interstate and he goes, Daddy, that car's bad. I understood what he was saying. He's not saying that car's terrible. He's meaning that car is better than good. Correct? I pulled up this morning. I noticed there's a basketball goal outside on the court or the pavement, the parking lot. Let's say me and my brother, brother Troy get outside and play one-on-one. -on -one. If I score on you, that means I'm good, correct? But if we play, and I tell you before we ever start, I'm going to dribble to the right. I'm going to go behind my back to the left. And I'm going to step back and shoot a fadeaway. If I tell you I'm going to do it and then I do it, I'm not good. I'm bad. You know, the same can be said about God. 
The same attribute can be said about the God that you serve. Because did you know in Isaiah 35 and 4 it tells us that He would come? Did you know in Daniel 9.25 it tells us when He would come? Isaiah 7 and 14, the Bible says how He would come. And Micah 5 and 2, it tells us where He would come. Can I tell this congregation that when Jesus came to this earth, when God came as the man Jesus, He didn't slip through the back door. He didn't sneak on the scene. He told every devil in hell, He said that I'm coming. He told him when He was coming. He told him how He was coming. He told him where He was coming. And He said, I dare you to show up and try to stop me. Can I tell somebody in this house, that's the kind of God that you serve he came and he told us all throughout the Old Testament how, when and where I've got to finish aren't you thankful that you know who he is they can come to the music I'm going to wrap it up with this you can be seated just for a moment but you can come to the music and give them some hope Watch this, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. I'm going I'm to read all seven verses because I want you to get what's going on here. Matthew 21, 1 through 7, the Bible says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and they were come to Bethage and to the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village, straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. So Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go get a donkey and a colt. Both of them. And if any man say aught against you, I want you to tell them the Lord hath need of them. And he'll give them to you. Jesus is stressing the point, I've got to have both. you got to get this. He's not saying that if he lets you have the donkey and you can't take the colt, that's fine. Tell him the Lord hath need of both. I need the donkey and I need the colt. Okay? And then in verse 4, the Bible says, And all this was done that it might be fulfilled by the prophet, saying, He's fulfilling a prophecy again. The prophecy was, Tell you the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. And he brought the colt and the donkey, and he put their clothes on them. I'll read that, and I've got one question. Why does one man, Jesus, need two animals? Was it because he needed his clothes to be put on one and he on the other? Again, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. I, I'm glad about, I'm, I'm, I love commentaries, I love scholars, but we are not built on the foundation of commentaries and scholars. We are built on what that book says. And that book will always tell you what that book's trying to tell you. So in order to understand why Jesus says, I need both, you've got to jump out of the New Testament and into the Old Testament. Because Judges chapter 5 and verse 10, the Bible says, Speak, ye that ride on white asses, ye that sit in judgment and walk by the way. This one verse is showing us that judges in those days always rode upon donkeys. Ye that speak and ride on donkeys, ye that sit in judgment. So we understand that judges rode on donkeys, correct? Skip down to Judges 10, 3 through 4. And the Bible says, And after him arose Jair a Gileadite and judged Israel. This man's a judge. He rides the donkey. But he had 30 sons who rode on 30 colts. Judges rode the donkey. Sons rode the colts. 
The father rode the donkey. The son rode the colt. So Jesus said, if that's the case, I'm the only man in human history who needs both. Because I'm father and I'm son. He said, that's why you tell them I need both of them. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you that Jesus was making a bold statement when He rode into Jerusalem that day that I am more than just some man that you hate. I am more than just some rebel that showed up. I'm more than Mary's son. He was saying, if you don't like my message, I got news for you. I'm more than a man, but I am the Lord of glory. In the other text, the disciples place Him on the colt. The colt is the younger one. So the donkey is the oldest being in the lead. Jesus is on the colt being led by the older one, the donkey, representing the emptiness of the Father. Jesus on the colt, ladies and gentlemen, was showing us, I am in full alignment with the Father's will. He was being led by the Spirit. Did you understand that in those days, being on a colt was a sign of peace? The prophecy said, Your king cometh unto you meek and lowly. He went that day riding upon a colt in peace. Because in times of peace, kings rode colts. In times of war, kings rode horses. And Jesus was going into Jerusalem that day offering peace. And when he rode in on that donkey and that colt, they rejected him and they crucified him. But can I tell you, the next time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's not going to be on a colt, but he's going to come back on a horse. And I don't know about you today, but I'd rather have Jesus on the colt than have Jesus on the horse. I'd rather have Jesus as a merciful Savior today than have Him as a judge tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the tragedy of Bethlehem. He came leek and lowly. He came in peace, but they rejected Him. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, as we all stand. I'm thankful that I've got the revelation of who I worship. I wonder if you can lift your hands right now all over this house. So how, how are we going to end a service like this? I was thinking that on the way here, Brother Moore. And I feel to talk about this, but how are you going to end? My mind went to when Jesus goes to Jacob's well in Samaria. Here comes a Samaritan woman. Conversation begins to unfold. How is it that you being a Jew asking me a Samaritan for something to drink? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus looks at her and says, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't ask me who I am and give to something. I'll give you water that you'll never thirst again. And thus he spake of the Spirit. But look at the dialogue between Jesus and that lady. When she first sits down, Brother Troy, she calls him sir. But the more Jesus is around, the more revelation begins to pour out of him. Because then she calls him a prophet. Come see a man who told me all I've ever done. But then finally when the conversation ends, ladies and gentlemen, she's first called him a sir. She then calls him a prophet. But then she looks at him and says, I know who you are now. She then calls him Messiah. And the Bible says she leaves her water pot and says, come see a man who told me all I've ever done. Five husbands living with the sixth. Do you know Jesus became the seventh man that came into that woman's life? 
The number seven represents completion. And when revelation came, completion stepped in. And her life was forever changed. That's why the Bible gives us a formula. They that know their God shall be strong. And they shall do exploits. Ladies and gentlemen, if you know who your God is, there's nothing that He cannot do for you. There's nothing He cannot give you. There's no situation that He cannot move in. Because if you've got a revelation of who He is, that means that you've been bought with a price. And His blood is on you. And His name is on you. And if His name is on you, you're in a covenant with Him. And if you've got a need in your body today, who is it to say that He can't heal you? If you need direction in your life, who is it to say He can't give you direction? I'm telling somebody, they're about to play and sing. I know it's 1145, but if you need something from the Lord today, I wonder if you could just throw your hands up right now all over this house. And why don't you let revelation begin to move in this building? Why don't you let worship begin to go forth? And where you're standing or where you're sitting, God can manifest whatever it is. Come on, I feel the Holy Ghost. Why don't we just step out for a moment? If you feel to step out, why don't you step out and come to this front? And if you've got a need today, why don't you lift your hands? And because you know who He is, God is able to meet every need. And God is able to answer every prayer. Come on, why don't you worship Him right now? Come on, it's easy to praise, but why don't you worship Him? Why don't you give Him worship? Because you know who He is.
Sanford that made the statement that this is a message may not be quite evangelistic, but I'm going to tell you something. I couldn't think of a more powerful message to be evangelized by than a one God message. Amen. Because all the power is wrapped up in him. Did anybody catch the key verse, the focus verse, and the first thing that was said in that first verse? Calling us to be what? Witnesses. What have we been preaching on the last two or three Wednesday nights? I'm telling you, God's working. He don't have a clue what we've been talking about the last two or three Wednesday nights. And watch this. The song just told us he can't be second. That includes to us. It has a revelation of who he is. He can't be second fiddle in our lives. He's got to be first. And if he's first, folks, we're going to have revival that's going to turn this community upside down. What a message we've heard in this place this morning. My, my. This is one of those messages you'll have to go back and get it and listen to it two or three times. Write those verses down and memorize them. Get it all together. This is powerful, folks. Amen. I thank God for the revelation. But I'm also thankful for that last part he talked about. I love it. I want us to love it, church. The love for it, the passion for it is what's going to get us out of here. Let's love it with everything we got. I don't want to be deceived by the devil, but I sure don't want God to send a strong delusion and allow me, amen, to be lost and undone. Thank God for this beautiful truth. Take to heart what's been said. There has been a lot said here today. Amen. But I believe there's a lot under the undercurrent that you've got to really be listening to hear it and, and tap into it. And it's in this house. God's blessing. God's working. Love you this morning. Appreciate you. 5.30 prayer time. 6 o'clock service time. Pray for those. Amen. Pray for the Cockham family today. That's going to be a tough time for them. I promise you. 59 years of age. Early in life. All said and done. Pray for them. Keep them in your prayers. Okay. God bless you. Appreciate you.